Let's pray. Lord God, as we even begin to consider what your love is and what your love has done for us, and we see it as, as reckless as you have sent your son to die on a cross. You've given your all that we would know who you are and be reconciled to you. But you are far from reckless. You are God everlasting to everlasting. God eternal. God infinite. Your plan worked to its smallest detail. Sovereignly worked in this fallen world that we would know our Creator. We praise you this morning for your love in Jesus Christ. Amen. If you were put on trial for proclaiming Christ, what would you do? What would you say? Where, where would you begin? What would our confession be? On October 1st, 2015, at approximately 10.30 a.m., Christians were put on trial at Umpqua Community College in Oregon, where, according to an eyewitness in a CNN article, an armed man entered a classroom having gained control of the people in the room, he told them to stand up if you're a Christian. When they stood up claiming Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, he then went on to tell them, well, good, because you are a Christian, you're going to see God in just about one second. Having been found guilty of faith in Christ, he shot and killed them. They weren't given much of a chance to say anything. But this man was right about one thing. At that moment, they found themselves before God. And according to the book of Revelation, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. For a little while longer, we live in a fallen world. For, for just a little while longer, we stand in the gap to proclaim Christ and to share the gospel in, in a desperately lost place amongst a desperately lost people. Knowing very well their struggle ourselves, don't we? We know what it is to struggle with these bodies of, of flesh and temptation. We know what life was before Christ, don't we? We understand their struggle, but we have
have an eternal hope, don't we? Do we know our faith? Do we know our faith and the condition of the world well enough to understand why it is so important, so vital that we speak out for the sake of the gospel? When we're confronted for not just going with the flow of the world, when we run into things that we have to morally, according to Scripture, stand against, are we willing and are we able, are we prepared to say, I worship the God of history, the God of Scripture, and the God of end times? Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 24. We're going to start at verse 1. Let's stand up for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 24, starting at verse 1. It says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one, her, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem, went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this... I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation or they, should they have anything against me. Or let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you 
this day. Reading God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you. In our passage today, here stands Paul on trial, accused of being a rioter and a ringleader, accused of intentionally trying to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. He's been accused of crimes against the Roman Empire as well as against Jewish religious law, desecration of the temple would have been punishable by death according to the Jewish religious law and even under Roman law at the time. Rioting, being a troublemaker, being a ringleader would have made Paul a traitor to Rome. Again, a crime worthy of capital punishment. Clearly, from their accusations that we see here before us, they wanted Paul dead. But Paul understands that there is a bigger picture here, a greater scheme at work. Paul wasn't the one on trial here. It was his faith in Jesus Christ that was on trial. It was the way that was on trial here. Verses 20 to 21. Let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. His only wrongdoing, if it can be called that, was his declaration of belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had done nothing wrong except to have faith in Jesus. But the world, much like today, wanted Paul dead and Christianity stopped. Did you see how they tried to separate out the way to distance themselves from it? They said, it's a sect, the sect of the Nazarenes. They aren't like the rest of us. Judaism was what the Roman government considered a religio licita, a legitimate and acceptable form of worship protected by the empire. So they accuse, they they say Christianity is not only a a sect, but it's a disruptive and illegal one. It it causes riots and and its leaders were trying to profane the temple. Just, Just do away with them right now. So Paul, seeing the bigger picture at play, dismisses these shoddy accusations against him that they couldn't prove and and brings their attention to what was the real problem, his faith in Jesus Christ. And he proceeds then to defend that faith. He gives them an apologetic for the Christian faith. He says to them, the way is religio licita because it is Judaism proper. It is simply Judaism fulfilled. Paul says to them, I worship the God of history, the God of scripture, and the God of end times. Verses 14 and 15. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, 
I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Christianity is a historical faith. It is a biblical faith, and it is an eschatological faith. So let's take a very close look at those two verses we just read to understand our own faith, what we believe. Because if we're ever going to be put on trial, we need to know what we believe, right? If we're going to ever be able to defend it. Paul says, I worship. Paul worshiped God. He had a dedication to God that encompassed his entire life, his entire person. Every last part of him was devoted to God because of what God had done inside of him. Following his Damascus Road conversion, Paul immediately gave his life to serving the Lord and his gospel kingdom. His life took a complete 180-degree turn, and he went from persecuting the church to trying to build it up and mature it and cause it to thrive. Reminding us throughout his letters that worship is more than singing songs and putting some money in a plate. Worship is a heartfelt, deeper than surface, a heartfelt dedication to God in everything that we say and do, everything that we are. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul tells us to present our bodies. We are to give to God the very substance of who we are in the here and now as a living sacrifice to him. Not waiting for later, not waiting till we've cast off this flesh, then I'll give you my life and, and serve you and worship you in heaven. Here and now, as a living sacrifice to him, Jesus quotes the Old Testament as he puts it like this. He says, And you shall love the Lord your God. Not just acknowledge the Lord your God. Not just know the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Everything that you are. And that is the fourth greatest commandment. Yes, you can chuckle right now. Is that the first greatest commandment? Everything. We are to give to God our hearts and minds, our thoughts and attitudes. Whoever translated it to that, our thoughts and minds, our, our, our hearts and minds, our, our thoughts and attitudes in everything, our, our whole selves with reverence and without reservation. 
not holding back a part of myself, a part of my life. God, you can have everything but. And we know that our worship has got to go far beyond mere religion when we look at God's response to Israel in the book of Isaiah. He says to them, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices going through the motions, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Israel was found fulfilling the law in motion, religiously, but not in their hearts. They had lost their love for God. So God says to them, your religion, it it disgusts me. I want you to worship me with your whole heart, mind, and strength. See, true worship, real worship is about God. It's not about me. It's about knowing who he is and what he has done and then responding to him with everything that we are from hearts of dedicated love that hold nothing back. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. From the songs I sing, to the prayers I pray, to the way I study and apply his word to my life in all reality, to brushing my teeth and cleaning the house. Can I say, like Paul did, I worship God? Has he worked new life in me, a new way of thinking and being that causes me to to rethink my whole life as an act of worship, as a sacrifice of praise? Do, Do I brush my teeth in the morning, at night, so that I won't get halitosis, so that I can talk to people and they won't be offended by my breath, so I can share Jesus and they won't be distracted by what I smell like? It's an act of worship! Because it's going to serve the Lord. Do I clean the house so that I can bring people in, so that I can break bread together with them, just like we learned about in, in Acts chapter 2.42, right? Sharing the gospel with my soil, building up and encouraging my family in Christ. It's an act of worship as I dust, as I pick up, as I prepare the table. Give it all to him. 
with heartfelt thankfulness because he is the one who gave it all to me in the first place. The one who in his grace and his mercy opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, that we should, should know him and worship him. Paul said, I worship the God of our fathers. I worship the God of history. I, I worship the God who has been there all along. Christianity is not a 2,000-year-old religion. Did you think about that? It, it didn't appear on the scene at the cross of Jesus Christ. Depending upon how you count the dates and the gene genealogies, the way reaches back 8,000 years to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We worship the God of creation. In fact, according to Paul, in the book of Ephesians, our faith actually goes back to before the foundations of the earth. He says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The God of our devotion is not a God made by man. He is the God of history, the God of creation. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, forever and ever, infinite to infinite. You are God. He is the Lord Almighty, the only living God. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. When Paul says, I worship the God of our fathers, he is saying to them, I am entirely devoted to the God who's been there all along, the God who gave us the law and the prophets, the books of wisdom like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and all that historical narrative that it's weaved together with. Christianity is rooted in the God of history from the beginning. And our faith is simply the fruit of his promises. Christianity is Judaism fulfilled. It is a biblical faith. He says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, because the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis to Malachi, is there to point us to the Messiah, whom we can identify in the New Testament Scripture, Jesus Christ. From the typology that we see in the Old Testament when Isaac, getting ahead of myself, Isaac is put forth as a sacrifice, the only son of Abraham. A foreshadowing, right? Or Jonah, who was swallowed up, only be, to be released in how many days? And how many days was Jesus in the tomb? Three. A foreshadowing. All there to point us to Jesus Christ, the sacrificial laws. They're there to remind us that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. The author of Hebrews reminds us of that in chapter 9, verse 22. 
And these sacrificial laws show us that if we want to be reconciled to God, animals just won't do in the long run. It had to be done over and over and over again. We need, to be reconciled to God, we need that perfect equivalent man for man and infinite eternal sacrifice in our place, that sacrifice that will be able to pay the price for sins for us, for for all sin, for all time, past, present, and future. Which is why Isaiah declared in Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And there are so many other prophetic statements and promises of God in, in Scripture fill, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Micah 5.2, where was Jesus to be born? Bethlehem. All right, where was Jesus to be born? There you go. Psalm 22, it painstakingly describes the torture and the events of crucifixion long before crucifixion was ever a thing. It goes on and on. The word of God, the Jewish faith, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Our faith is a biblical faith. It's biblical because Scripture points us to Jesus. And it's biblical because we believe everything laid out and written down. Everything. It's all God-breathed, isn't it? 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Our our faith is not man-made. It's God-breathed. We don't pick and choose what we like and discard what may offend us. This isn't a salad buffet, and, and we don't believe just because it suits us or pleases the world. And we need to be careful as the church, as the body of Christ, as his bride, we need to be careful not to allow the word of God to get mixed up with the worldly philosophies that so often try to entangle themselves with our faith in the name of comfort, in, in the name of, of the world's version of love, or, or in, our, in the name of peace. It'd be so much easier to be a Christian, wouldn't it, if we would just let a little evolution in. It'd be so much easier if we let a little naturalism in, or, or compromise in the passions of our flesh, justifying our sins before God. Do we, like Paul, 
take pains? Do we take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man? Verse 16, he says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Are we careful to handle accurately the word of truth, whether or not it agrees with us? Do we know it and live it, even though sometimes it hurts? And let's, let's be honest, sometimes truly living for God is a pain, isn't it? That's why we don't do it so well. It means that we don't live for ourselves any longer. I'm going to have to give up me for him. And as, as we're called in Scripture, I'm going to have to give up me for him and for you. Which is a complete change from the way we normally live, isn't it? It's normally me, and then maybe God, and then maybe you people. Right? No, I flip that upside down. Put God on top, and then your brothers and sisters in Christ, and then last and least me. Paul is on trial here. He's in prison. Sound fun? If things went wrong, he could be executed. Eventually, he would be. But thank God, our faith is not only historical and biblical, but it is also eschatological. Our faith has a future. We worship the God of end times. Our, our faith has a future beyond the pain of this world. Verse 15, he said, having a hope in God. Which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul is not being foolish when he tells us in Philippians chapter 1 that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He isn't being foolish. He's trusting the God of history and the God of Scripture, the God of end times, the, the God who has revealed himself in creation and in Scripture and in his Son here on this earth. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Ours is a forward-looking faith. This isn't it, ladies and gentlemen. This life we have is not the end. We have a faith and hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We have a hope in Christ. Amen? But did you notice the warning? Did you notice the warning in what he said there in that verse 15? He said, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Resurrection will come for both the just and the unjust, for, for those found in Christ and for those found apart from Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, he says, At that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who fall asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We believe everything, whether it suits us or not. And the truth is, the day of resurrection will be a day of judgment. In this day and age, in this world, we don't like judgment, do we? We're crazy. Okay, okay, okay. Let me take a little sidestep here. My, my wife and I, once in a while, we like to watch these, these shows about people who have done bad things and watch them get caught. We love that sense of justice, right? And, and, and you see people who murder other people get how many years in jail? Seventeen. When somebody robbed a, a store and drove a car really, really fast and dangerous-like, and they got life. We're crazy. We don't even know what judgment is. We don't know what truth is. We don't know how to properly judge these things. But anyways, back to where I was. The, the, the day of resurrection will be a day of judgment. And, and if we are still found in our sin, if we're still found unforgiven because we have not accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior... We will be condemned to eternal hell instead of eternal life. Because God judges properly. God judges rightly. He will not fail in his judgment. And, and you know what? Don't blame God if you're still found in your sin. Because I tell you what, right here and right now, he is giving you a choice to make. You can accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Today is the day of salvation. Don't let it go by. Be reconciled to the God who created you, who loves you, who loved you enough to send his son to die in your place, to be your sacrifice. Faith in Jesus Christ is historical. It is biblical. It is eschatological. Our faith is, is proven true throughout history and the pages of Scripture. And it will have an eternal effect. It will have an internal importance, carrying with it an eternal gravity if we are found apart from Christ gravity do we those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior do we know our faith do we know whom we believe 
Do we know our faith and the condition of the world well enough to understand why it is so important, so vital that we stand up and speak out for the sake of the gospel today, not tomorrow, not putting it off. The world, they will try to stop us. They don't want to hear it. But they so desperately need to. Because the real trial is yet to come. Let's pray. Father God, as we bow our heads and we humble our hearts before you, I pray for your spirit to be at work here in this place, in the here and in the now. And Lord, I pray for anyone's hearts who's been so moved. Lord God, I pray for hearts and minds to acknowledge you, to to accept the truth of you and your judgment and your word and to believe everything written in the law and the prophets and to know the God of history, the God of Scripture, that you are the God of end times, that the day of judgment is coming and it's according to your word and according to your perfect and holy will. Lord God, we pray that this morning, if there is anyone out there who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you would strike their heart in the here and in the now. And Father God, if, if you would so move by your Holy Spirit, and, and if you out there are being moved to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you raise your hand? Would you be so bold as to raise your hand and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior that you might be reconciled to God? Just raise a hand. Father God, we pray that you would make this church family a tool in your hand. that we would be those who carry to people the, the truth of your gospel. If every last one of us has accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, I pray, oh God, that every last one of us would be an instrument for your gospel. Give us strength we don't have. Remind us every morning of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ given to us, not because we deserve it, but because you are God. Your love is everlasting. Father God, we praise you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.